Hello and welcome to another episode of Radio Zaddy. I'm Hannah Bestwick and I'm here as ever with the eloquent, enigmatic, existential Daisy Thurston-Gent. Thank you very much. And this is a podcast where each week Daisy and I learn about a new queer topic and tell the other person about the things we have learned from things well known to be queer to those hidden gems of history. But today we have a very special guest with us. We have Agnes Torok. Hello, Agnes. How are you doing? I'm doing great. That was an amazing pronunciation of my name. We were talking about it just before starting recording and I am seriously impressed. Um, thank thank you. you. I thought if I just said it as quickly as possible, then maybe it'll come out really well. It did. It did. It absolutely worked. I think that's the trick for any language, really. Thank you very much. Uh, now, Agnes is an award-winning spoken word performer and author, publishing and teaching in two different languages. They've worked in collaboration with the BBC, Films for Action, Dangerous Women Project, Upworthy, Roundhouse Theatre and many more. They've also done a TED Talk, toured in four continents and had their work published in five collections, a spoken word album and in an extensive number of videos online. Their work exists at the intersection of art and activism, performing, running, wor running workshops and writing about the issues they feel strongly about solidarity, trans rights and social change. Their books in English include All the Days We Don't Revolt, We Need to Talk, Solidarity and Survivorship and Happiness is an Art Form. Now Agnes, I actually listened to your TED, TED Talk a few weeks ago and it was absolutely wonderful. I really enjoyed it and I, what I was wondering um, is was it originally written like as a poem and then adapted into a talk or did you because it was so lyrical and, and it flowed so beautifully how did you, or did you just write it like that from the start? That's a great question. It actually depends. So I, I've been lucky enough to hold two TED Talks. The first one was about happiness and happiness research. And that uh, that started out with me being invited to be like the entertainment in between the real talks uh, because someone on the organizing committee <laughs> had seen me do some open mic somewhere. I really wasn't well known in any circumstances. And I just decided wow. to make it a TED talk and they'd have to deal with it. Uh, and they did. Yeah, and it was nice. one of the, the more popular and shared talks from that film conference. Uh, so I just decided that it was going to be a TED talk. So I had 12 minutes, which was the same as anyone else. And fuck it. Um, so it was Definitely. like three poems with some in between chat just built in together. Um, and That's then so good. And that later became my first book, but that wasn't, I'd never written a book. That wasn't on the horizon. I just knew how to do poems to people in crowds. Yeah. And then the second TED Talk that happened in November of 2018, I'd written a book mm. for two years about sexual violence and how to end it. And it ended up being published right two weeks after the Me Too hashtag. So it came out and they asked me to wow. do a TED Talk. It was like, we feel like you could probably talk about this. And at that point, I'd already written a full book. So I was like, I just tried yeah. to summarize a book in 12 minutes. And that was a lot harder than trying to wow. make three poems last for 12 minutes. <laughs> That's incredible. Um, yeah. so they, it's quite a task. They sort of had opposite processes. Yeah. Yeah. One expansion and one uh, reduction. That's amazing. Yep. Um, but you're here today to talk to us about the importance of queer joy. So thank you. So I've been thinking a lot about this since you asked me if I wanted to speak to this. I thought, oh, there are so many things I have to say on this topic, but I've nothing. A lot of my books come from having done some sort of research, having lived through some sort of experience. Mm. And I was like, I haven't researched queer joy. Have I experienced queer joy? Definitely, but not in like a big life changing years of my life type of way, mm. but in small daily instances of it. And I started thinking a lot about what, what does queer joy mean? And especially for me as a non-binary trans person, what does trans joy mean? What does it mean yeah. in a time when our communities are under constant attack, when the most marginalized within our communities, black and, and people of color in our communities are 
under constant attack, what does it mean to prioritize joy? And I think the concept of queer joy and the concept of trans joy lends a lot from the movement for black joy. Mm. It lends a, lends a lot from the, the ways in which those communities and those identities intersect. So I started thinking about what do these things mean? And I think a lot of it is what it means is when we are the topics of public discussions, like trans people are in the UK and across the world right now, what happens is a sort of dehumanization, right? Mm -hmm. We become topics of discussion, like Sean Fay's brilliant books, The Transgender Issue, right? We become a, a political issue. What does it mean to, in that, reclaim our humanness mm. and our humanity? Some of what that means to me and to a lot of people who've written about this and hold, held podcasts and, and done art projects about this, what it means is not only reclaiming the bits of our lives and the bits of our histories where we face struggle, um, where we are uh, brutalized or faced with political attacks, mm. but also reclaiming those parts of our lives and our histories where we live in joy, where we live in community, where we live in friendship, where we live in love, where we live in self-realization, where we live in momentary utopias. Mm. And giving not only a sort of it gets better hope to young trans kids and young queer kids, but giving a realistic, your life would also contain these multitudes of joy and beauty. I think that's a sort of offering that we as sadly elder trans and queer people have, have a responsibility to make. Yeah, I'm 29, but I feel old, at least online, I feel old in queer spaces. And I feel like that's that's a really great thing, right? There's a there's a certain self-knowledge that comes with age and with different experiences, but even at 29 um, means that it's important and it's possible to have that perspective of going, what does it mean? to place emphasis important and to give celebration to our communal and collective joy? Mm. What does it mean to make that loud, to make that visceral, to make that felt? And I think what that means is it continues to replenish us to be able to take those bigger political struggles, those fights, stand up for ourselves and other people in our communities. But it also means that our lives become more than that political issue. Yeah. Yeah. Our lives become full lives. Our humanity becomes our full humanity. And I think there's something really beautiful and really fragile and really vulnerable that happens when we maybe not choose joy. I don't think there's, it's such an easy thing. It's like you, you pick yourself up by your bootstraps and you choose joy in the middle of all of the very real things that our communities deal with. But being able to, in those spaces, think about what does it mean to also place emphasis on the best possible scenarios? Yeah. What does it mean to also celebrate and uplift our moments of, of joy and pride? Uh, what does it mean to place the focus there when the world around us only wants to put us in the headlines or give us attention when we are at our absolute worst mm -hmm. and going through the worst things that people can go through? What does it mean to choose those other bits to allow ourselves to be soft in public? Mm, it feels like we have to live our most traumatic things out in public in front of everyone, live through our trauma on a stage. And then being forced into the closet for so long, you end up only having joy in private. It feels so important yeah. to lift that veil and be like, no, there is also joy 
Yeah, allowing joy to take up space, you know, in the in the public narrative. Mm. You know, there's so much negative press. So I think to, you know, there is an activism in campaigning for happiness and campaigning for joy because it it does exist. Of course it exists. And as maybe an older queer person, you would like to think that you are more settled within the community. And it's just about kind of Mm. showing that strength and and saying, yeah, there are we exist absolutely fine. And it's not just doom and gloom. Mm. Beautiful idea. Yeah, and those those sort of multitudes are are what gives a human portrayal of us, right? Yeah. And one that people who, whether whatever age they are, but people who are not out yet, who are struggling to come out to themselves, to people close to them in public, struggling to become part of of the communities that they do feel part of because that's scary or that's not accessible. Um, what it what it means to kind of praise that joy and celebrate that joy. It's, I think, also about kind of reaching out a hand and saying, look, if you realize this about yourself, if you realize that you are queer, if you realize that you are trans, if you realize you are gender non-conforming or non-binary, if you realize these things about yourself, that is not the end of the story. That's the start of the story. And the story is fucking great. Welcome. You know, and I I think there's something really amazing that happens there. And a lot of my thoughts around this a lot of my process around this comes from the times that I've been able to gather with queer and trans activists from around the world Mm -hmm. the the last uh, trip that I took before the pandemic hit was I was in a a queer artist residency uh, outside of Barcelona uh, in Catalonia and we were just I think there were 30 of us there were 30 artists activists and academics working around uh, queer issues uh, or not issues, working around queerness. A lot of it was joyful. Okay, so not just writers, and we all, but a, a mixture of disciplines. Yeah, yeah, a lot of academics, uh, which is which was really great to be in that space with as well, um, and, and activists. Um, and all of us were just put in a hotel, given fancy dinners and time to talk <laughs> for a month. Wow. And that was my last experience, like seeing strangers yep. for the last two years, you know? And, and it was a beautiful, if, if I would recommend having a, a last pre-pandemic experience, that is the one the I would recommend. <laughs> yes. It's really making me think of the last supper, of just like everyone <laughs> together having a beautiful meal and just kind of not re- maybe not realizing Before that it was going to be the yeah. last the strange yes. encounter. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. We've spoken about it. We have our little WhatsApp chat still going. We've spoken about it all going like, I'm so grateful we had that time because... Yeah things turn dark pretty quickly after and and like it's people from all over the world so the experiences of the pandemic have been very different and the experiences of restrictions and lockdowns have been very different Mm. but we talked a lot about what what happens to the accessibility of what it means stories about what it means to be queer and what it means to be trans um when they are either heavily edited you know they're in books or they're in films or they're in tv series or when they are sort of not heavily edited, maybe online and, you know, posts and stories and videos, mm-hmm. uh, they receive so much backlash, so much hate, uh, just an onslaught of, of online vitriol. And what does it mean to only see those two versions, right? A fear of being vulnerable because it might be hit with just an awful level of death threats, rape threats, homophobia, sexism, transphobia, racism, or, something that is heavily edited and possibly not written by people who have lived this experience mm. and people who are, who are telling it from a sense of oh we should include this rather than 
this is an experience I deeply know and understand. Yeah, not an mm. authentic it's a token gesture. Yeah. Mm. yeah, and and what o- often happens is they both become sort of traumatizing stories, yeah. right? Yeah. Either it becomes traumatizing because someone wants to shed light on the struggle of queer people or on the struggle of trans people, and that's what makes a great TV show or a yeah, great yeah. film. Or but that's a you know um, tremendous uh, task for for a writer and for particularly a poet you know to capture that detail authentically and to kind of really zoom in on on a lens that you know with a lens that is yeah capturing all of that that magnitude of of life and culture but to you know keep it genuine how do you do that (laughs) I I don't know I don't know that I do I know that I try I know that there are people around me I think are, are great at this and there when it comes to to queer joy and trans joy there there are two projects that I you know, everyone needs to check out. And one of them is, is Gabby Rivera's podcast, Joy Revolution. Um, Gabby Rivera is the person who wrote uh, Marvel's uh, superhero, America Chavez, and who has written an amazing uh, novel called Juliet Takes a Breath. And it's just like celebrating gorgeous, gorgeous queerness mm. through joy. Um, and not through life being easy and fun and privileged, but mm. through prioritizing and celebrating joy precisely because it is not those things. Yeah. Um, and there's also a brilliant artist called Amy Tien who runs the Queer Joy Project, which is an art project. And I, I think both of those things, like understanding the ways that we celebrate ourselves and each other, not because of how great or easy queer and trans life always is, mm. but despite of all of those other stories, right? Yeah. To uplift those other stories. And yeah, I frankly think it's like, it's mental health work doing this stuff, right? At times it's suicide prevention doing this stuff. It's about making sure that we see ourselves in the future. Statistically, so many young trans people cannot imagine their lives in five or 10 years. Mm. There is no bridge between where we are now and where a potential future is. We don't know elderly trans people. We don't know people who live the kind of lives in the future that we're hoping to live. So we can't envision futures for ourselves at all. And a loss of a sense of future. Yeah. That's so dangerous. It, isn't it? It's so dangerous. Now you do a lot of, yeah. cause you do a lot of, um, you facilitate a lot of workshops with, I mean, are those, do you like working with, you know, exclusively kind of trans groups? You know, what are the benefits of working with um, trans and non-binary people like to imagine those kind of futures? And I know you were, you know, utopia is one of, you know, a topic of yours. Yeah, and so as you both know, I did <laughs> I did a workshop around writing queer and trans utopias with uh, London queer writers. I also did it at this this artist residency in in Olot outside Barcelona, um, and there have been a few other plans to do similar things that have been cancelled by the pandemic in various forms. So every time we have been able to do it, it's been amazing. Like it's been so so great. But I also think. I do it in less organized ways. So I hold a lot of writing workshops. I hold a lot of workshops around different things relating to how to survive off of your art. Mm. Um, and, and I teach in like universities and, and colleges around that kind of thing. But but one of the most joyful forms of learning I do is in with my queer and trans Dungeons and Dragons group. Yes. Um, yes, which, which I also know that you know of. Um, and that is, I think about envisioning queer utopias through collaborative storytelling. Mm. And I think that's one of those ways that a, a lot of queer and trans people do. Maybe it's not officially, you know, a role-playing game, but all of these ways that we 
share and create stories together and that becomes sort of weaving a path into the future yeah, yeah. where before there wasn't that one space is incredibly powerful you know and there is you know survival in imagination I think that's just absolutely you know there's so much to that yeah I think that there is and I think I think there's something that happens when we create visions of futures and visions of lives that are unapologetically queer and trans and that are not that that acknowledge the trauma that comes with being queer or trans or both in a world that is hugely queer and transphobic and and you know sexist and racist and you know but I think there's something that comes with acknowledging those things but not allowing that to be the only narrative we tell about ourselves you know what what happens to young gay boys and men who come out whose first reactions from their parents or the people close to them are you know their fear that their their kid or their brother or their teammate or their friend will contract HIV what happens when the only story we tell about gay people is that you're likely to be harmed or ill or die what happens when the only story we tell about trans people is that you are likely to be bullied or hurt or denied health care and that there is no long life or long future for you. What happens is that it takes enormous work for each individual person and work that not everyone has access to, a privilege to do, or the opportunities to do to build a future for themselves and to build a vision for themselves and a life in which they are, if not perfectly happy and joyous all the time, a life in which there is joy. Mm a life in which there is contentment, a life in which there is all of these things that we all need and strive for, right? Mm. And I think that takes a sort of collaborative storytelling. I think that tells us we need to keep telling stories about ourselves, to ourselves, with each other, to each other, to kind of build those bridges into types of being in community, types of being in ourselves that we've never seen we have to invent it yeah it's so important because it's it's i want to call it a generational trauma but it's it's something different to that it's you know this collective collective unconscious idea that queer people will live miserable and short lives and that even if you don't know what people are definitely thinking you can tell how they react towards you you can see portrayals of what might be you on tv and in films even mm. before you really understand if it is you and that narrative didn't form overnight. That narrative built up and built up and built up and became more elaborate and more dismal. And there, like, you can't undo that kind of damage overnight either. So, you know, like what you say, you have to tell the positive stories. You have to tell the joy repeatedly and in many ways in order to correct that narrative and say, no, you can be happy, you know, and you will, mm. you know, you will grow old and you will be the person you want to be. It's just... Uh, it feels like a difficult job sometimes. And I guess like with, you know, with fantasy and, and role playing and, and kind of playing out those those stories, that could be the first time any of us have, have allowed ourselves to envision a future or to mm. play out something, you know, in the form of, an, you know, an elder or, you know, a, a distant future version of ourselves. And I think, you know, we talk about this quite a lot on the podcast, um, you know, especially in like online spaces. And I don't know, we were talking about like the, the furry community and you know and yeah. and like yeah. avatars and and cryptids and well, you know I was just these about ways. gay sims that all my sims were gay and i was like it just feels better yeah, this way for some reason yeah, like, i didn't happen. really know what was yeah. going on i'm not gonna analyze it i'm not gonna explain it's it nothing it to read into there nice. yeah oh yes 
I have done many a gay and many a trans sim. Yes. It's important. And it, it you know, it could be the first the first opportunity. Um and then but how yeah, yeah how do you take that into reality you know how you need that that platform of expression to test things out and to see you know what you are going to be like if you act that way amongst other real people you know through a kind of platform you know virtual Mm. platform yeah you need the you need the place the platform to experiment first yeah and i think i think there's something i think there's something to understanding that what it means to come out is already to decide to prioritize our joy, right? Many of us, and I, I'm not saying you have to come out to be legitimate in, in queer and trans spaces and that you're ever done coming out because that's mm. rarely the case, right? But what it means to acknowledge who we are, how we identify, how we love, um, how we seek pleasure, these things are sometimes the first choice that we make that are not about priority prioritizing other people's expectations of us, other people's image of us, what other people want for us, the types of futures that other people want for us, but choosing what we want and need. And sometimes it is a deep sense of need. I wish I could do that for, you know, parents, or I wish I could do that for employers, or I wish I could do that for school teachers or whoever it is that's putting those expectations on a particular person, but recognizing that I, I can't do that. That's not who I am. That's not how I work. And I always find in these discussions around sort of gender dysphoria and and how we navigate a narrative around transness that is often centered on dysphoria, which, you know, dysphoria is perfectly and absolutely legitimate and getting healthcare and help to deal with that dysphoria, getting, you know, the gender affirming surgery you need, the hormones you need to help with that dysphoria is a human fucking right. But as well as that being true, I think that many of us find our way to the label trans, not because there is a disconnect between ourselves and our bodies or ourselves and how other people see us, but because there is a tremendous source of joy in freeing ourselves from what we are expected to be, the labels, the roles, the words put on us, and to choose words for ourselves, to choose labels for ourselves, Mm -hmm. to choose expressions for ourselves. And I think seeing people do that, I mean, uh, Alok uh, Vaidmanon speaks beautifully about this, but seeing people choosing to live their freest, most liberated, most joyful, most colorful lives, part of why that can cause so much backlash and so much violent and, and horrific transphobia, well, it doesn't cause that. Part of why those reactions occur is because everyone, cis and straight people included, have had to, I'm going to call it, they've had to kill off parts of themselves Mm. in order to to be a a proper man Mm. or a good woman, Mm. uh, you know, a good wife, a solid father, whatever it is that they feel they have to be to perform gender correctly. Mm. And it must be uncomfortable and restrictive, right? Yes, yes. And some people lash out with that sense of discomfort or insecurity or just deep hurt or trauma that comes in that. Um, onto visible, especially trans feminine, especially trans feminine people of color. And, and none of that is ever excused, but understanding the reasons for why that happens, I think also allows us to understand the reasons why those of us who are able to find our identities and queerness and transness, why that can be such an enormous source of joy. Yeah. 
because suddenly you are liberated from all the things you are told you have to do to be a worthy person, to be a worthwhile person, to be a lovable person. And when you suddenly take those things away and you realize, oh, look, I'm still standing. There is nothing more joyful in my life than that. Mm. Yeah. It's redefining, yeah, what worth means and what worth means to you. Yeah. Mm. And there's so much joy in realizing that it it feels better to be true to myself than to conform and get external approval, approval you know, like it still feels yeah. better to be truthful to me you know absolutely and even though that often comes with huge obstacles and and the knowledge that there might be consequences of that that are are heartbreaking the choice to still prioritize your own joy that's huge Mm. like that is huge and it's going to lead to amazing things and even if the short run depending on circumstances can be rough you know and, e- and I think even it's... more powerful to do it in a community, you know, to have a group yes. of people behind you, you know, that's incredibly powerful. Yeah, right? Actively I... supporting and encouraging yeah. your growth. Yeah, because yeah. it, it's one thing, obviously, you know, you, you do that for yourself and you, you come to terms with who you are and you say, great, now what? You mm. know, and then to have to know that there is, a, yeah, as you say, like an open, a door opening to a, a community of people who have all had their own experiences um, and some will be similar to yours but you know no two are going to be exactly the same but to know that there are just hundreds of other stories similar Mm. to yours yeah I was thinking about the fact that you know coming out actually you know it is it is very difficult it doesn't necessarily mean that you're automatically proud for a lot of people either you might not want to have come out or you just feel that there isn't the option to stay in the closet anymore because it's the urge, yeah. the need to be seen is so intense and desperate. And I think there's there's a lot of um, judgment on people for doing anything that might be considered selfish. You know, well, you know, it's selfish, you're going to upset your mom or your dad or whatever, but why shouldn't we be selfish? Why should anyone not be? Like, being selfish is important because how are you going to survive if you don't look after yourself? But also, I don't think it is selfish. Like, I think it's fine to be selfish. And I think especially if you come from a marginalized group who's always been told to deprioritize mm-hmm. your your health and your well-being mm-hmm. for the sake of, you know, more valuable members of your family, more valuable members of your community, more valuable members in the world, you know, that that that's totally legitimate, mm-hmm. right? But I think what happens when we choose to, to be ourselves out loud, when we choose to be ourselves in color, what happens is that while some people around us who, for whatever reason, don't get it, might see that as selfish, you know, potentially thousands of people who are in that same internal struggle suddenly see someone doing what they've always wanted yeah. to do or that they know since recently that they need to do and they understand that it's possible. Hmm. you know not having ever seen anyone do that thing that you know is going to make you come alive Hmm. whether that's having your your first queer kiss or going to your first queer prom or or you know having a different gender presentation or using a different pronoun that you have before like that is that is huge and I think you know just like I think there it's absolutely valid that we need to talk about gender dysphoria because that is what allows us access to life-affirming healthcare. Mm-hmm. I think that when we talk about gender euphoria, 
we also talk about that utopia instead of the dystopia, mm. right? We also talk about, if we talk about what are the what are the things, what are the forms of language, what are the ways of interacting with the world, what are the ways of dressing, of doing my hair, of, of being in relation to other people that give me a huge sense of rightness, mm-hmm. right? Not just that make me feel good, but that make me feel right. Mm. Like that's what that joy is. That's what that gender euphoria is to me. Yeah. Right. And I want that for everyone. Like I want that for cis people. Go ahead and claim your gender cis men. You know, enjoy it. If that's how you find joy in your gender and you can do it in a way that is not passed down to you by by old traditional norms, but because you have chosen this gender for yourself and it brings you a huge amount of joy, fucking do it. Mm. Go ahead and enjoy it. Mm. You know, and, and I think there's something to queer and trans people leading the way in that. We are forced to give up so many old notions of what a good life is and what a good person is. And what we find and what we build in the stead is something that everyone else gets jealous of. And if they're lucky, tries their best to live by in their way, right? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if that's smug, but I'm going to go ahead and claim yeah, that you say, for trans people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, just yeah, be proud. You have to be proud and you have to look in at the detail. You have to go in deep and find that yeah, find that self-worth. And yeah, of course you want that for for cis and straight people as well, but they have to really commit. They have to know that it is something they believe, you know, hand on heart, like whole with their whole being. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I think something something I've been thinking a lot. I've just been thinking about this in the last few weeks since we started talking about this. And I've been thinking a lot about uh, Sonia Renee Taylor's book, The Body is Not an Apology. Mm. And I think something, and, and, and you know, she writes about things that are uh, related to all types of oppression and the ways that we carry them in our bodies and the way that we try to lessen ourselves to not be in the way, to not make too much of a fuss, to not be unnecessarily complicated to other people. All the ways in which we apologize for having bodies mm. and the way that those bodies are understood and interacted with in the world. But I think that that queer and trans people can find themselves doing that in ways that are, frankly, really self-damaging. And I think that prioritizing queer joy and trans joy is a sort of antidote to that. It is saying there is nothing to apologize for with this body. It's just uh, it has every every much the same right to joy, every much the same right to pleasure, every much the same right to ease as all of the other bodies do, you know? And that shouldn't be, that shouldn't be revolutionary. That shouldn't be a big deal. Yeah. But I absolutely think it is. I think we are taught to not be one of those queers, mm-hmm. to not be one of those trans people yeah. that make it complicated for other people yeah. by not apologizing for ourselves. Yeah, there is so much in, you know, in the space of mental health and well-being and wellness that is very, you know, it, it does exclude trans people. And which is completely like counterproductive, right? It completely under undervalues the work that pe- you know people do do in that space. No one person is entitled to 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 well being more over someone else. No, and and again, like I think this is I don't know. I find it easier to claim this as someone who wants to claim it for other people, right? I find it easier to claim this as someone who goes because I know that people who are like me in where I was in my life when I was 10 or five or 15 or fucking 25, they need to see examples 
of people living it's yeah it's proudly but I don't I don't actually think it's that it's about people living not giving a fuck Mm. you know not having to stand up for themselves or for anyone else but just living their lives fully Mm. and those lives include all of the things that lives include including heartbreak including difficulty including grief but they also include these moments of tremendous joy and there's a joy that comes from being in community, if the queer community or trans community is the main community that you have, or if it's one of several communities that you feel deeply enmeshed in, there is, n- there is nothing that brings greater joy than that. There's, there's just nothing, I don't, I mean, I've, I've written so much about this and I still find it hard to put into words, but there's, you know, I'm, I'm not religious, but being gathered with my community is the closest thing that I come to holy. Yeah, that's beautiful. Being being on a queer dance floor or being in a queer protest or being at a friend's dinner party is the closest thing I come to holy. Sitting with with two of my closest friends on the couch watching Generation Q is the closest thing I come to holy. And that's not because it's the best series in the world because it isn't, but it's good. Um, but it is because there's a sense of reclaiming our full humanity that happens in spaces where we don't have to apologize, where we don't have to justify, where we don't have to explain. And the fact that those spaces are rare for all of us, including those of us who have been out for years and who live safely as who we are and who have a community and who have you know, friends and partners and family members who understand us, the fact that those spaces are still rare tells us everything we need to know about why queer joy is important mm, Absolutely. for people who are not in those positions of privilege they need to be able to see that because you can't like you know with activism you can't take your foot off the gas really like, like there's always more to do yeah i feel like uh sorry to slightly cut you off there i was, th- I was thinking about that and about you know the the example that you gave specifically of sitting on the sofa and just like chilling out with your queer friends not doing anything particularly groundbreaking but just being and being comfortable and I think that that's uh something sharing that kind of moment is something that's really facilitated by social media snap a pic of me and my friends in the garden having drinks together you know that's not gonna get make the news but other people can see that and and we know that there are queer moments to be had everywhere and and how important that is to know that it's it's going to be in every element of your life it's not going to be only at pride when you're a bit drunk and the sun is shining and everyone's partying and you have to party non-stop it's going to be everywhere you're going to be joyful everywhere mm. yeah that's why i enjoy seeing those spaces you know those a queer D group you know a poetry yeah. workshop where there's 20 people you know it's it isn't gonna it's not gonna change the world but it could change those people who attend those those spaces it's, it could change everything for them it could be the you know the thing they need yeah. to bring them back from the edge that day yeah definitely and I think yeah I think of it as little when I was when I was coming into who I was both first as a a queer person coming out as bi and then pan and then as a trans person coming out as non-binary what allowed me to picture a future was kind of seeing these little glimpses like they were premonitions of a life I could have you know, if I don't allow myself this, if I don't own this, if I continue to hold on to things I've been told I should be, should want, should prioritize, I will not have these little glimpses that I can see ahead could be there if I dare to take this huge leap. Mm. And I, I think of it almost like a, I don't know, I, I often thought of it as a beat or a melody. Like when I was when I was in my roughest place around that, um, what I what I felt I heard was a sort of 
just, you know, like, like bard song, like just the slightest thing of like, this is what could happen if you dare this. This, this is what the world could be. This is what your life could be. This is what two years from now could be. This is what five years from now could be. And, and it wasn't anything specific. It wasn't like a goal or a formalized thing. It wasn't a mood board, you know? What it was, was a little, like a, a beat, a slight little tone of a song. And I've, I've been writing about this in, in Swedish, which is my first language. And something that I kept coming back to was string theory, which is, ridiculous but but the image that I kept coming back to was a sense that the little sort of song or melody or bit of bird song that I had in my head when I envisioned what a, what my queer future would look like every time I was around other queer people that formed a harmony mm. and every time I was around a bigger queer community that formed a song and I kept thinking of it as a string instrument I kept thinking mm -hmm. of it as the melody the universe is playing in the form of string theory. Okay. And there was this sort of image that came back to me there that was like, this is both extremely abstract. And, and for me in that moment, absolutely true. No, it's great, My I'm ready for the world tour, let's do it. Mm. No, it's beautiful. <laughs> I was, as you were talking there, I was thinking about it as like, each person that you met came with another part of the orchestra. And you hear yeah. slightly more of the song as more and more people come until eventually you hear the full, you know, symphony and you're like, goodness me, this is wonderful. <laughs> just imagine Gosh, like a, you yeah. know, a little queer kid just with a glockenspiel, like, where's the rest of my band? Like waiting. <laughs> oh yes. And then suddenly And the... I think that's what it is, right? I think I think knowing that you're queer but not having an environment in which to be queer, which which gladly is less of an issue today mm -hmm. with online things existing, but when I was a, a 10 year old, I didn't have a smartphone mm -hmm. and, and fully knowing that I wasn't alone in the world in liking girls, but also not knowing anyone else who did. That was like being that, that little weird kid in the corner with like the maracas mm -hmm. going, where's, I signed up for the band. Yeah. It's just me. Where's everyone else, you know, and needing to wait yeah. five years. Yeah to have one more instrument in my life mm -hmm. and to wait another two to have a few more to a point where now I just I'm walking around in a constant fucking orchestra yeah. it's beautiful but it all makes you know? sense it makes sense in tandem with all these other elements you need you need all that yeah and it's not it's not the full picture of all of those queer potentialities and possibilities until we're all gathered whether that's online or in a physical space but the sense of gathering is also the sense of going, oh, the melody could sound a bit more like this. Oh, when this instrument comes in, I realize this. You know, it's not about harmonizing in the sense that we all have the same experience, the same narrative, mm -hmm. you know, but it is the sense of like, I, I realize things about myself by hearing all of the other people in here mm -hmm. play their truest selves. Yeah. Or stopping playing, I guess. Yeah. It's reminding me a lot of like something I've been reading about recently about how we gain a sense of self and how important it is to be seen and be reflected back by your primary caregiver as a as a baby to then understand that you are a person basically and yeah it's one of the reasons that like social exclusion hurts so much is because you're not being reflected back and and it's almost like you feel like do I exist anymore because they're just blocking you out and if you're a, a queer person growing up on your own with no reflection back there's that sense I I, I got that sense of I, I'm I don't 
not that I don't exist, but like, how can I exist like this? Because mm-hmm. there's nothing, there's nothing yeah. on the other side reflecting back to me. It's just me, you know, like you said, playing one part of the song and not hearing the other echo. Mm. It's mixed so many metaphors there, but you, I, th- I feel like maybe, yeah. maybe you understand. Yeah. Before, before you're able to give uh, yourself permission, you seek permission from others to be yeah. yourself and if you, yeah if that is disrupted in any way or if that doesn't um you know uphold your sense of who you are that you feel within yeah that's going to be incredibly damaging and it makes sense as to why we feel are more authentic well for some people maybe not for all i can't say all people feel they're more authentic queer self when surrounded by other queer people because it's it's so yeah. much more affirming you know and yes there's yeah. lots to be said to you know experimenting in your room or just hanging out on your own at home and just doing whatever but when you're surrounded by a group of people that are constantly reaffirming yes you yes you you're great like you're doing you yeah. i see you as you with your chosen name your pronouns you're wonderful how much yeah. more authentic an experience that could be definitely and I think it's also why it breaks my heart just a a special amount when when queer and trans spaces are not inclusive you know and and it's obvious that a lot of them are extremely majority white it's obvious that a lot of them are not wheelchair accessible Mm. and it's obvious that a lot of them are are biphobic uh it's obvious that a lot of them are are not inclusive of trans people fully or or if you're not the right kind of trans you're not included mm. and and i think there's something that happens when we come into a room hoping maybe not daring to expect but hoping to finally meet the rest of our orchestra and being met by silence like i think there is a special kind of rejection there that just hits people really deep in the gut and I have so many friends who who like me are bi and are, are proudly bi or are pan or are proudly pan and who have such a, a mixed emotional state about being in trans spaces and knowing that depending on who their partner is, depending on if they are with someone, depending on how they present, uh, they might be read as an imposter, right? And And feeling and knowing that there is something that there is such a particular responsibility to those of us who have been playing our instruments alone for much of our lives Mm. to just make sure there's always a fucking orchestra when the new person comes in, you know? I I think that's something that we can never... I think that there can be reasons why we need to take a breath and a, a breather from constant activist work, even though it is necessary. But I think the the work of actually making sure that our communities are inclusive and more importantly accountable that's something we can never take a breather from even when what we need is to come into a space and just let other people play for a while you know I'm constantly mixing metaphors now so I don't know if any of this makes sense but you hear what I'm saying I think there's that sense of rejection and the the sort of numb or or silent uh treatment uh that can happen within queer and trans communities Mm. I think it's especially damaging when so many of us need those spaces to just stay sane yeah. or stay at least, you know, manageably mad. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and how do, you know, how, how does that happen? Like, how do you ensure you've thrown the door as wide as it can be, but how do you get people into those spaces? How do you make sure people actually walk through the door? And if you're running events, you know, if you're facilitating workshops, you know, are there any kind of are there any kind of immediate improvement improvements that people can do? I think it's always just making sure that the the organizing team and the team behind it 
are as varied in experience as the people you want through the door because anything else even when extremely well researched and well intended and I say this as a white person I know that a team of people who look like me is not going to create an inclusive event you know and, and I think that there's something to knowing that it needs to happen early on in organizing and also that that's difficult right it's always difficult to put together any sort of stable organizing group for anything because it's usually unpaid and people burn out and they need a break and you know those are not sustainable structures yeah. to think a lot about these are the people we need for this or it's usually a, a putting out fires kind of operation but I think there's something there to to starting with who are the people who are creating this space and those are the people the kinds of people that the create that the space will be for or will feel inclusive of right I, I often find that I'm, I'm running a few writing courses right now and nowhere anywhere in the description does it say that these are for queer people that these are for women that these are for trans people that these are for white people and yet those are the people that show up because that is what they know to expect from me and which is legitimate mm. and I'm really glad to hold a space for young trans people and young queer people in my writing group are often places where people try out new pronouns for the first time or try out a new name for the first time and I'm very glad to do that but if I if I was trying to organize a space that was a community space yeah. rather than this is a group and I want to make sure there are other writing groups as well and those get much funding and attention but if I wanted to create a community space I knew you know it can't all look like me mm. and it can't all share my experiences no matter how well intended or or well researched yeah my going into that is absolutely yeah I mean intersectionality yeah. is is such a it's a buzzword for a reason at the moment and I think you know organizations do need to especially arts organizations do need to take it very seriously and like understand you know the gravity of using that word and and to to, to stitch it into the very like fabric of of an organization like you know from the internally and you know from the top as well you know doesn't have to be it's not just the job of of small community groups you know not for profit no. groups it's you know it's a collective um so okay so Agnes I had a question about um about uh the expression of joy and obviously you write in in two languages primarily um does your expression of joy change when you're writing in English compared to when you write in in Swedish I think it used to okay. and it doesn't anymore so I'm, I'm born and raised in Sweden. I have Hungarian uh, heritage, but my first language is Swedish. And when I started writing in my first language in Swedish, and I was a teenager and I was a very pretentious teenager, as many, many poets are. Oh, sure. um, angst is global. And yes, yes. Much, so much angst, but in very long, complicated, unnecessary words. You know, I was, I was very busy trying to prove I was smart enough to write poetry rather than actually writing poetry. Mm. And so when I started out writing, uh, and, and it's okay that this is a process that everyone creatively goes through, but all of it wasn't necessarily great because I was so busy trying to prove something. I wasn't focused on what I was trying to say mm. uh, and to who I was trying to say it and how to make it accessible to the people I was trying to reach. So when I started writing in Swedish, I, I was just writing very roundabout, unnecessarily metaphorical. It just wasn't... It wasn't direct and clear and the kinds of things that I prioritize when I write now. And when I started writing in English, which is my second language, I had to be 
more limited in my vocabulary because when I started again as a teenager I my vocabulary wasn't as good mm. I couldn't I couldn't name or much less pronounce a lot of complicated English words so I had to be I had to use the type of vocabulary that anyone in my audience would also have right I would never be able to use a word that other people didn't know and that was great that meant I had to say really complicated things in a really simple and direct way. Wow. And I, what I often do in, in writing is trying to crystallize a moment, trying to crystallize an image, trying to crystallize a feeling, an idea in as few words and as direct words as possible. And switching languages helped me do that because it was necessary. I didn't, I didn't have any flowery language to use, you know? <laughs> And so when I, again, started writing in Swedish, and now I, I do both, and I, I write and publish in both languages, but when I started writing in Sweden again, when I moved back five years ago, I could still do flowery language, just like I could now do flowery language in English if I wanted, but I realized I didn't want to. Mm. It didn't help me do what I was trying to do, because it my poetry wasn't about me anymore. It wasn't about trying to prove something about who I am or what I can do. It was about trying to communicate directly with people who the flowery language would just get in the way of, yeah. you know, why take a roundabout way to saying, I see you. Yeah. Why not say, I see you? Yes, I can say it through an image or I can say it with a rhyme, fine. But why use 14 lines to say, I see you? And so I, I think switching between languages has meant that I write in a more similar way and a, and a better way than mm, when I started. More consistent style, but, yeah. Yeah. And because I think even though like because the languages are different, sometimes the readers or the audience members are different. But a lot of it is saying I want to reach people in an accessible, direct way to talk about things that I know I'm not the only one in the world who needs to talk about. And and so switching helped me do that. Mm, that's very important. I, I was wondering as well, like as you as you were talking about all this excessive flowery language, like I absolutely used to do that and I look at my old work and cringe so hard. But was there any do kind of work out how to say that I think for me when I was like over um over egging it, let's say, I think I was trying to hide myself behind extra layers of something. And as I've worked out more about myself, there's become less need to kind of layer up and layer up and say somewhere inside this secret poem is something about me mm. that you can just say here's something about me and I wondered if that was an experience that you had or if it is specifically limited to the switching of language no I absolutely think I did that and for the exact same reason and I didn't have even remotely the self-knowledge to understand that that was what I was doing mm. I thought I was being mysterious oh, um, me too yeah um, but actually the the American spoken word artist uh, Megan Fally has a great way of kind of imagining this mm. she talks about clouds and anchors where clouds are the sort of flowery fancy language nice metaphor use of a simile throw in a nice little alliteration there and the anchors are what am I really trying to say yeah. what's the what's the purpose of the story and what is the story and she often talks about you know the, the clouds are about if we are too cloud heavy if 90% of our poem is clouds Usually we're trying to hide ourselves. We're trying to avoid being vulnerable. We're trying to be smart instead of being honest, mm. right? And usually if we are very anchor heavy, we are maybe going solely on an emotion like anger or grief or hurt mm. instead of also trying to look beyond ourselves and communicate with a reader in a way 
that is artful yeah. and playful in language. Mm. And and her idea is you want a 50-50 balance, right? I definitely lean, lean 60-40 in favor <laughs> of anchor with, without without exception. But but you want to sort of balance there. Yeah. And I think there's a lot, there's a lot to that. I think the flowery stuff are a way to hide. And there may be a way of writing without communicating. And I think that there can be gorgeous inventions of language in that. But it's not the type of poetry that I am interested in writing. Mm. Because I am interested in writing with urgency. Mm. I'm interested in writing because there is something I am dying to say to you. Yes. And I think you need to hear it. Yeah. And overly flowery, overly cloudy language doesn't help me do that. So important. Yeah, that's really interesting and really valuable insight as well. Because I feel that, you know, the anchor, let's say, I feel angry. Yes, you've told me how you feel. But then if you pair it with a cloud, you can actually make me feel it through exactly exactly well I think you should tell us about your latest book just this leads perfectly on exactly all the days we don't revolt is that right that is right uh yeah so all the days we don't revolt I wrote it as a guide to collectively surviving crisis wow okay we need that right now (laughs) the timing was impeccable well that's the thing right it wasn't it wasn't this was not the crisis I was writing it for. Mm. Um, didn't know the pandemic was coming. It released in March 2020, so pretty spot on. Uh, but it was, uh, you know, I've been writing it for two and a half years. That's not why I started. And when I started, what I was writing about and what I still think is is sort of the core of it was how do we as queer people, as marginalized people, as people who are hurt by and hurting by the current way of things how do we actively take the fight against a popularized and populizing extreme right Mm. against organized racism against organized fascism uh against really uh and this was i was writing it during trump right but i was writing it in a sense of like how do we deal with the constant onslaught of our dehumanization when i see so many of my community members, so many of my friends, so many of my loved ones burned out trying to undo half of the wrongs done in the world in a day. How do we continue to care for ourselves and each other? How do we practice not only self-care, which can be a buzzword that includes anything from face masks to bank loans, right? Mm-hmm. How do we how do we practice community care in the sense that we have a system and a way of saying, I'll get this one and you get the next. Yeah. How do we make that not rhymes at the pub, but discussions with discussions with uh, the local the local housing agency? How do we make that the discussions with the the new trans rights bill that's up? How do we make that the discussion around anything that's happening in the news cycle and anything that's happening in our lives and anything that is the daily work of sustaining ourselves and other people? How do we have the same feminist principle of I'll take this bit of childcare and you'll take the next. I'll do this bit of birthday party planning and you'll get the next. I'll do this bit of, you know, speaking to the migration office or the home office and you'll get the next. How do we have the same system of allowing ourselves moments to put our feet back, mm. to put, put our feet up and rest, which I think at the time was the closest I could come to envisioning joy because I was exhausted as many of us were, and I'm sure are, but how do we allow 
these moments in which we replenish ourselves and each other in our daily lives so that we are able to continue to revolt, mm. right? How do all the days we don't revolt not turn us to apathy, but turn us to a renewed energy and renewed commitment and a new working on the bigger political things from a source of love and community care. Yeah, that's incredible. It feels like it also ties into the, um, come back to the TED talk again, sorry, that you talk about what I've learned from uh, studying happiness and that taking care of our community or taking care of our, our relationships with other people is a source of joy and the importance yeah. of community care to restore us and keep us fighting another day. Mm. I think you've absolutely yeah. nailed it with, with the title as well. You know, yeah. to have a, a, a piece about, an extended piece about joy, but to have the word revolt in the title, you know, to centralise it and especially, and we, all the days we don't revolt, you know, it centralises the community and, it, you know, it's yeah. about pulling, I don't know, pulling up together and kind of moving together. It has to be, it can't just be, you know, the pulling up the ladder. It can't just be like, well, there's a few people in the right places, so that's fine. It's saying, let's make some more space. You know, mm. the people in the room, in the rooms who have access to the conversations saying we need more microphones, we need more chairs. Yeah, it's like having um, exactly. You know, we're in. I'm gonna. It's now a movie trope. You know, when people go camping or something like that, and they say, you know, I'll take the first watch. You let others sleep yeah. while you watch, and you know that someone will be watching while you sleep. You know, and it, you will yeah. look after each other. It's amazing. Uh, where where can um, people find the book on sale? Uh, it is in selected bookstores. Could not tell you which ones at the moment because COVID. Uh, but it is also on Burning Eye Books, which is the publisher's website. And you can buy it from my website if you want it signed. That's agnestorok.org. But I think the, I, I, it's great if you buy the book. What happens if you buy the book is 10% of the proceeds are donated to anti-racist organizations and trans rights organizations. So that's great. But also, if you find a friend who has the book, freaking borrow it. I don't, the point, the point is I'm trying to say something. And if it speaks to you, you know, share it. Yeah. But um, but any place that those things exist, and I know, you know, you can sometimes find them in libraries and stuff, feel free to do that rather than buy the book. I think there are far more useful things for you to spend your money on if you can find something that brings you joy today or something that helps your community today. Spend those 10 pounds on that. That's extremely gracious of you. I think I will be buying your book though, so I'll lend it to you, Daisy, and then yeah, that's our bit done. We can make the uh, that's the great queer library. We have uh, a huge queer library growing, and yours will have to be one of them. Oh. Well, well, you. I feel very honoured to be part of the queer library. It's been absolutely wonderful to have you on the show today, Agnes. I really do appreciate it, and go out there and experience queer joy. It's su such a wonderful thing, and it doesn't need to be on your own. A community queer joy moment is you know, all the better, as we've heard. Get your orchestra together, sing a song. I've been Hannah Bestwick. I'm Daisy Dustin Gent. And we've had Agnes today with us. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. That's been great. Cheers. Bye. <laughs>